0: section thirteen of six radical thinkers by john mccun this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter three the cobdenite doctrines of trade and non-intervention part five it is here one finds it hard to repress the simple question what would be likely to happen were a great power like the british empire to act as cobden would all his life have wished what would happen if it were to renounce in the eye of the world the intention of so much as lifting a finger unless it was itself attacked and to declare that come what might it would limit itself to the influence of peace pursuing example two results at any rate such tidings would in some quarters sound like the knell of doom it would be so in small and weak countries with powerful and aggressive neighbours in rich countries feebly governed and ill defended in uncivilised races whose lands are coveted by civilised colonisers in a word in the possible victims of ambition over the civilised and uncivilised world on the other hand there would be other ears on which the tidings would fall with a different sound on the ears of the ambitious master of legions or of great powers covetous for colonies or spheres of influence or of unscrupulous fomenters of insurrection or ruthless stampers out of insurrection or of fanatical hordes such as in our own day have devastated the soudan to such as these and who will deny that they exist what could be more welcome than the acceptance of cobdenite principles by such great powers as might come between them and their malign ends. Swift would be their perception that by every power converted to the gospel of non-intervention they would have so much the freer hand for the indulgence of their ambitions and rapacities. Is it by the powerful example of great powers that such as these are to be restrained, or by refusal to subscribe to loans for the cutting of throats? Even were this practicable or by courts of arbitration which announce their intention of never enforcing their findings, or by negotiations for disarmament. Can we believe, much as we might wish to do so, that anything avails to stop them short of the armed hostility, actual or threatened, of precisely those powers which, if they followed Cobden's advice, would refuse to intervene at all? This is the standing difficulty of a doctrine of non-intervention. Admirably fitted to convert some nations whose intervention, in the interests of justice and freedom, is most to be desired, it is thereby only too likely to encourage the intervention for ends not so laudable, of those other nations or tribes whose intervention is not to be desired at all. In other words, it would neutralize the action of those who being amenable to argument seem least in need of being bidden to hold their hand and those who need to be withstood to the face it would leave by removal of checks upon their action to work their will with the destinies of people and the course of civilization nor can any man feel confident that such a policy even were it desirable can be seriously said to be practicable the sympathies of a nation are not bounded by the barriers of its own life and interests and times are apt to come when these sympathies racial religious political humanitarian become so passionate that they cannot be restrained if this be the fact it is part of all wise statesmanship to make provision for such a contingency little to be envied is that country which should adopt a Cobdenite policy only to find itself swept along on a wave of democratic passion into an armed intervention for which it was all unready nor is the manchester school to be acquitted here of unconsciously playing a part which is something of an irony upon its own doctrine for if it has become difficult for englishmen to stand by and passively look on at what they consider tyranny and atrocity in other lands one reason for this is that the moving words of cobden and bright have helped to make them lovers of freedom it is the jealous patriotic unselfish love of this freedom says cobden impelling the whole community to rush to the legal rescue of the meanest pauper if his character or personal liberties be infringed by those in power that distinguishes us from all european countries yet this is just the leaven which makes it difficult to listen to such tributes to freedom and then to play no more than the spectators part in struggles which though they may be beyond our frontiers are still struggles for freedom begotten of the words of our own orators and statesmen nor need a great nation be stayed from intervention by any or all of those doubts that cobden throws upon its fitness for the task if as he says of england its record is not clean enough the answer is not denial but the admission that if indeed it be so then there is no better way of redeeming even the uncleanest of records than by resolute intervention and sacrifice in a righteous cause and when he argues that no nation is wise enough to be trusted to act it is not necessary to hold a brief for the wisdom of governments enough that the intervention of a nation in foreign affairs may be justified not so much by any claim it can advance to perfect wisdom as by a well-grounded conviction of the unwisdom of its intervening neighbours or rivals it is certainly no part of human wisdom to hold its hands either at home or abroad till it can find perfect instruments nor can it be said looking at the matter broadly that since cobden's day the conditions have made his policy easier of adoption in some respects perhaps they have the public conscience is more disposed to condemn war at any rate in the abstract some countries again our own surely seem to have become greatly more sensitive to sacrifice of human life all countries it is safe to say have come more clearly to realise the cost of war partly for the simple reason that it has become infinitely more costly but partly also one may hope from the diffusion of sounder economic ideas the interests that suffer from war have also under democracy grown larger and more articulate nor can it be doubted that arbitration has made some though not perhaps marked or rapid progress at least civilized peoples are coming to know one another more and to hate one another less. Yet it may be feared there are influences, not evil influences only by any means, which tend in the contrary direction, and one of these is the growth alike in fact an idea of nationality, in so far as nations tend to expand into great empires, this may ultimately make for peace. The Pax Romana was the other side of the imperial system of conquering Rome. Similarly, there is a Pax Britannica not to be broken within our empire. Assured peace within great empires on which the sun never sets is an installment towards universal peace, if such a thing be possible, not to be despised. But apart from this, and certainly in that period when empires are actively in the making, who will say, that the spirit of nationality makes for peace for it seems to be axiomatic with the nations of the world that their own unimpaired existence and in the case especially of strong nations the realization of their ideals is essential to civilization this appears to be the creed on which they act and not unnaturally for under the existing political system in which there is no higher authority to do justice as between nation and nation each nation is driven to feel that the trust immediately committed to it is its own self-preservation and development the heritage of our civil and political liberty so hardly won our altars and hearths our language traditions and ideals our colonizing instincts our imperial destinies for these the citizen is more immediately responsible these things have so to say the first charge on his thoughts and energies and though there is nothing in this that need prevent the obliteration of that international ignorance suspicion and hatred which still persist even between highly civilized powers there remains a risk the risk that the intense patriotic devotion to a man's own country which seems ready to make almost any sacrifice for the nation, will bring the citizens of diverse countries, in all honesty, to do something more than justice to their own claims and aspirations, and something less than justice to the aspirations of their neighbours, thereby paving the way for those dire collisions of clashing interests and irreconcilable ideals, out of which comes the sanguinary arbitrament of war. It is a vast assumption, one could wish it were a demonstrated truth, that the real interests of all nations are in harmony. It is still but an aspiration, one could wish it were a true prophecy, that what, under that just prejudice men call their country, the nations severally believe to be their interests will not come, only too often, into armed collision. This risk is enhanced by the direction which national or imperial aspirations have recently taken. For that victorious industrial and commercial development in which Cobden saw the presage of peace has stimulated powerfully the appetite for colonial expansion and the rush for spheres of influence. And when the appropriation of the sphere of influence is wedded to the monopolizing spirit of protection, who can doubt? that it carries in it the seeds of many an international quarrel cobden himself was ready to admit that armaments were necessary for defence but a nation of manufacturers and mechanics dependent for their bread upon their success in foreign markets may be seriously menaced by other things besides invasion of its shores or overt attacks upon its colonies and dependencies or armed aggression on its mercantile marine the diplomacy of rival and sometimes hostile powers especially if those powers can reckon upon an attitude of non-intervention may close markets finally over vast and populous areas is nothing to be done then but to try to argue such monopolists into free trade policy nor is it a little thing that cobden asks of the citizens of any of the great powers of the world when he invites them to become non-interventionists He invites them, no matter how strong their cosmopolitan sympathies may be, to renounce once for all the claim that their country should give expression to these sympathies by either act or threat of war. It would be rash to say that in asking nothing less than this he was unreasonable. It is at any rate certain that the citizens of a state after Cobden's own heart would escape from much they would escape the certain cost and the costly uncertainties of war. They would escape the risk of drawing the sword in an unjust or hopeless or trivial cause. They would escape the responsibilities of provoking counter-intervention. Not least, they would escape participation in those horrors on which it is needless to dilate, and in which even the justest of wars stands panoplied but it would not be all gain for these immunities they would have to pay a price the day would come it would be certain to come sometime, when they would be face to face with the fact that their country had it in its power to intervene with decisive effect in some cause which enlisted their deepest political sympathies while yet there was nothing for it left but to play the role of the spectator spectator possibly of armed interventions by which the fate of nations and even the futures of continents was being determined in defiance of all their hopes and aspirations it is not easy to unite in one ideal of citizenship those cosmopolitan sympathies and aspirations of which cobden himself was a prophet and that refusal to draw the sword save for defence alone which to writers like mazzini has seemed nothing less than an abdication of cosmopolitan duty copton's political creed has drawn upon itself vehement and varied attack soldiers have resented and surely not without reason his bitter disparagement of a great profession and scholars his philistine scoffs at the elysis. in his glorification of the magnitude of modern material interests he was grossly ignorant or forgetful that the tiny glorious athenian state was the cradle of civic and political virtue imperialists have taxed him not unjustly with the belittlement of colonies and dependencies and an indifference to greater britain and men of more spiritual and ethical fibre such as carlyle and ruskin have denounced his ideal as a calico millennium the result is that there has grown up in many minds the picture of cobden as a limited man a political huckster to whom trade was all in all it is no true picture of the man no careful reader of his speeches and pamphlets can accept it and still less can any student of his life for though his talk was of trade and tariffs of wages profits rents loans debts budgets this was in large measure the result of the fact that it fell to him to lead in the free trade movement it is easy to see that there was room in his soul for much beside the things which were perforce most upon his lips we have seen this already in his own avowals of the ends that upheld him in the free-trade struggle but we can see it elsewhere often in unexpected ways who was it in that vacant half-hour at shrewsbury sighed for the knowledge of mullions and architraves that had been denied him who was it laughed at the paisley manufacturer who wished to exploit the classic dune for water power who was it who never ceased to yearn for the peace and simplicity of country life who was it stirred the heart by his tribute to the heroism of the quakers who held life light amidst the horrors of the irish famine who was it declared that had he the casting of the role of all the actors on this world stage he would not suffer a cotton-mill or manufactory to have a place in it nor did he fail to feel as few men of affairs have felt the spiritual price that often has to be paid for strenuous public service here i am he writes from wales when the battle of free trade had been fought in one day from manchester to the loveliest valley out of paradise ten years ago before i was an agitator I spent a day or two in this house. Comparing my sensations now with those I then experienced, I feel how much I have lost in winning public fame. For Cobden's ideal of English citizenship was not exhausted in that comfortable, prosperous abundance which he believed a policy of free trade and peace would certainly bring. He has told us so himself. There are many things besides free trade to be done, before this country is a fit place to live in. End of Section 13